grab your bowls and spoons, kiddos. It is now time for the Peter Butter and Syrup Podcast with your hosts, Corey and Dahoo! What is going on, everybody? Welcome back to the Peanut Butter and Syrup Show. We are just a couple of cousins who's talking shit about things you don't care about. <laughs> and I am one half of your host. My name is Corey. And I'm Darut. And the man who could cut this off at any given minute, the, our audio guardian over there, is Mr. Brian. Hey. And, and rarely does for some reason. <laughs> I don't know. He, he's a glutton for punishment. <laughs> it's kind of like a train, train wreck. He's like, but is the wreck actually over? Should I, should I stop it? Like, are we ready to clean up the crash or is it still in motion? Oh, so Brian, what do you want to hear us bullshit about today? So we were talked a lot in a previous one about midlife crisis and stuff like that. But, you know, one thing that uh, absorb a lot of people's lives are absorbed in is music. And I think a lot of us, our lives revolve around music. I talk about your early days of music and your exposure. So do we want to get into like music theory, like eight tone music and uh, twelve tone? No, stop and, making no, my not head the hurt. Science of music <laughs> and why? And it, God, I'm having flashbacks <laughs> to middle school. No, it's we see when the string the, vibrates. But the emotional when the photons in the light strike the <laughs> at one hundred eighty nine thousand feet per second. Wasn't um, that when that uh, the still uh, Steve Martin? Steve joke? Martin, and, yeah. <laughs> Well, I, I, I just want to say uh, I've been a musician. It's obviously a big influence in my life, but I have weird other influences because of it. <laughs> well, and it's to me, it's more as Brian and I talked earlier off air is it was about the emotional side. Like to me, the younger generations music has become disposable and it's it. You don't make that emotional connection with a band or a song. I mean, I remember, I mean, making plenty of, uh, so that is our, uh, house dog is fluffing his pillow to lay down and take a nap. Um, <laughs> I don't know how fluffy you can make a pillow, but my boy's gonna, gonna let us know. He turns as he knows he's being judged. Um, it, as a kid, you know, um, I grew up with with Alice Cooper. I, you know, I started listening to to Wel- Welcome to My Nightmare at, at like five years old. I remember begging to stay up and listen. Or so um, you don't remember this. You're probably not yet old enough because I'm barely old I enough. I do to remember, remember that your mom was going to buy us tickets to the Constrictor tour one time I was visiting you. So I recall. Which I wish we'd go. Alice now. Cooper had a special on him. I want to say it was on ABC. Welcome to my nightmare. Welcome to my nightmare with Vincent Price. Mm-hmm. And I recall begging to stay up and take um, take part in that and enjoy that show. And I was just a little kid. I mean, that was that was something. And it was just something that I really wanted to be part of. And I was I was just a little kid. I'm talking like, you know, first grade. So I don't see and I and I had this conversation with my daughter the other day. I said, what does music 
mean to you? Do you really connect? Like I recall, and I know you were the same way, when something came out and you heard it on the radio and it it made a, a connection with you, like oh. whether it was the lyrics, it was the rhythm, it was, was the drum, you were, as soon as it hit the store, you were there buying that music. I was music. discussing that on Twitter one day. I was like, I remember when um, Simon's Dream came out, I bought it, <laughs> I wore it out. I remember going to see... Um, Getting the uh, Stone Throw Pilots, uh, the um, music from the Vatican gift shop. I remember sitting out, driving to the college, sitting outside by the one of the rec areas, and just sitting in the car watching people do their PE stuff, and just over and over and over. I remember when Black Sunday came out by Cypress Hill. We went the day it came out, me and my buddy Brandon went, and all we did was partake of the good earth for about two weeks and listen to that album over and over and over. I mean, it's like, I I remember the moment my buddy Matt Reeves played Master Puppets for me, and I was like, what the fuck is this? No, it's Metallica. Because I remember Sanitarium. What is a Metallica? Sanitarium. (laughs) You hear Sanitarium, that boom, boom, boom. You're like, dude. It owns you at that moment. Yeah. I mean, I remember these moments, and as much as I'm trying to get that with new music, they don't have it. It's it, much harder yeah. because new music, while disposable, still it's so similar. It does, it's so hard to well, find it, something it, unique. And, it, and it's easy to say it's the corporatization of music, because even like if you look back at, um, you know, kind of jumping a little ahead of where I wanted to be, but that's cool. We'll circle back. Is like look at Rat when Rat oh. when Rat got signed by. Um, I think it was RCA that signed Rat back in the day. The moment they got signed and they cut a deal, uh, that place was alive with people trying to recruit bands that sounded like Rat. And this was in the 80s. Well, nowadays, it's very easy to make bands sound a certain way. Oh, I know. I mean, not like production music. I know it was like... I need a Latin theme song, but I only need it for 30 seconds, and I'll sit there and write a 30-second tune that's easy to do, and I can write them all day and long. And that's pre-production. Not, well, I'm talking about like music you hear on YouTube and stuff like that. Right, right, but hear. I'm just saying, but yeah. the concept of you writing it is pre-production. It, once you go through production, you can make it sound however you want. And and that's the idea. I mean, it, the the it's like anything. Once it's proven, it makes a. I mean, here we are. Let's a perfect example podcast. Once it's proven that it that it's viable and there's a market, no matter what it is. I mean, flavored ice cream, you know, jelly beans, vomit flavored jelly beans. Like they started selling those. It's the same thing. Well, once you people, once you find out this, right? Well, there is a there is a, the practical joke side. There is that. But so there's a guy who ate bugs on another. But fly. when it comes from you know the music that they find that one sound, so they need everybody to emulate right, even that if one sound. And like you know, metal was metal, but it changed. And once there was a specific kind of metal sound in the '80s, and then it was like. Wait a minute. We can sell these. Like people line up. Well, and that's my theory on metal. As far as it is a genre of music, I don't think there's any other genre of music that has more subgenres. 
And I mean, and that's an opinion, but I feel like it's a solid opinion yeah. that metal has a man, God, it's so got much, so many different sounds, and it, you we because call it subgenres. Because even screamo kind of is metal. It yeah, in a way it is because it has a tone that if you remove the vocals, screamo metal sounds like other genres. You right. just changed one element. The of pedals it. they're using to send mm-hmm. the guitar signal through, the things like that, it's still got that same metal feel to yeah. it. Well, it's interesting because as me and Brian have connected in our friendship, a lot of this has been over metal. And it's like, you always talk about a band. It's like, oh yeah, they're thrash or they're this. And like, dude, when growing up, there was, there was like metal. There was just Iron Maiden, Ozzy, blah, blah. There was speed metal, Metallica, Megadeth, this show. Or there was like glam metal, which is everything like the LA scene. And I was like, that was it. It was not like right. But even me, when you said that, I, I mean, I'm sure you saw me laugh because <clears throat> even in the '80s, I wouldn't have put Iron Maiden and Ozzy in the same category. Yes, they're metal. But when you go to the store, they're both metal. Well, if or you'd have stayed rock up, and roll. Okay, let's say you stayed up and watched Headbangers Ball. That was a huge thing. As a teenager in the 80s was, dude, Headbangers Ball. That was the only validation he got as a metal listener was Headbangers Ball. Ozzy would be on there, and then Iron Maiden. And then there'd be Accept. There'd be a, I mean, it was all the, we can call them sh- subgenres of metal. But in my mind, Iron Maiden, you know, I don't even know if I'd class them with Judas Priest, you know. But that's well, they're an, definitely that's an, metal. But that's yeah. a, I mean, they're British invasions. Of, right. It's of an opinion-based thing, but it's just well, they're more prog rock, prog metal than right. Yeah. You know. And then there were, and even then, I mean, I was a huge Maiden fan, and at the same time, I was like, well, there's a couple songs that are okay, you know. There, I wasn't just like a hundred percent into them. But yeah, I mean, it is it is interesting if you really, and maybe we have to do that sometime is go through my CD collection and go, all right, how would you categorize? And then we just put them in stacks. Well, and that would and be then the see interesting how many different thing is, stacks we actually end up with. How would you categorize it today versus the day that you first discovered it? So, you know, today you would say I wouldn't put Maiden and Priest together, but maybe back then they were a little bit closer than we thought. Well, what's funny is I don't know that I even realized that metal was well. They were way a genre. Like right. I didn't even understand the concept maybe of genre other than there's rock and country. Yeah, that was that was a very simplistic thinking, but that's kind of where my brain was, and I was like, okay, foreigner, that's rock. Iron Maiden is rock because mm-hmm. at the time all we had was '96 rock in Atlanta. That and was they it. Played and it they all. played Jimi Hendrix. They played Phil Collins. They played Iron Maiden. They played. They didn't play Iron Maiden a lot, but they would hit it. Played a lot of ACDC. Lots of ACDC. So it, I think really when I first started listening to metal in the early 80s, um, Dio, Ozzy, Iron Maiden, stuff like that, I didn't really think of it as metal. It was just rock because it was on a rock station. Again, it was a very simplistic view because I was just a kid and I and I wasn't really it, to me it wasn't about analyzing it it was enjoying it well and I think metal wasn't as complicated because now that we've got several decades to really 
pick apart the different artists that I like are how out old there. You made a sound when you said yeah. we have several. <laughs> several. Got, not a few. Not just a. Get off my musical lawn, boy. Several. He makes it sound like metal started like eighty-five well, years ago, even before during then. the depression. So you know, I get into, that's how the kids got through the depression. Isn't that how people got through the depression? Was high distortion music. They wore spiky leather pants. Yeah. (laughs) Yes. They were rationing food, but they weren't rationing metal, baby. We were all listening to metal. Oh, yeah. That was for the people. They had one hand out and the other hand horns up. Yes, exactly. (laughs) I Um, mean, some of my conversations I have, the metal goes back before, you know, um, Ozzy and all them because some of my favorite genres of music... I don't like that it's now called stoner music, and it's basically all Black Sabbath worship. Everybody loves Sabbath, but yeah, every one of those bands you introduced into was yeah, like this is it's Sabbath. like these guys grew up on Sabbath, but really Sabbath had that sound. But Blue Cheer was more metal before Sabbath. They Blue Cheer beat them to it by a couple of years. You're but talking it's all about really marketing. high distortion, yeah. Yeah, it really is. I mean, I I, I have to think that came down to record label. Oh, and, yeah. and then how much money or faith that because ultimately it comes down to money, but they won't put money in if they don't have faith. Will they spend on marketing to actually get out? Like, all right. So here's interesting. Beth loves um, Ozzy. We have a Pandora channel that's Ozzy. I've you know like everybody else, you have several different Pandora channels, but that's an Ozzy one. If old. Black Sabbath, which I enjoy, comes on. She's not a fan. Really? Like she just. I mean, I'm talking like old, you know, like sweet Black leaf, Sabbath, sweet leaf, and stuff like that. You know, it's just she didn't connect with that because, again, I don't. She wasn't huge into music. I don't know how passionate about music she was until we got together, and then I introduced her to stuff like Depeche Mode. Again, as a metalhead. I was always looking to expand, um, and I was introduced. I love People Are People. When that song came out by Depeche Mode, the video, of course, helped. But that song resonated, not not necessarily connected with me on an emotional level of the, the concept of the message they were trying to send, but just the rhythm and the beat, and it just... It, it would grab you and it'd hang on to you. So I, I introduced her to that. So I don't know if maybe that's it. And then she just learned Ozzy from hanging out with me. And then I never really introduced her to Sabbath. Or if it's just Sabbath and Ozzy are not the same thing. It's a completely different vibe, completely different feel. And even in the 80s, the stoners listen to Sabbath, man. Oh, yeah. it was, it's not a newfound thing. It's a perpetuation of a, a concept that developed 30-something years ago. Although Brian said several decades. <laughs> the um, funny thing about Sabbath, though, is like people like Sabbath for certain decades. Like I, I'm only an Aussie Sabbath fan. I don't care for Devo with Sabbath. I don't care for anybody else. I know. See, like, I'm different. I Sabbath to me is Aussie, but I won't deny that when Dio hopped on board, his version of it was badass. And then I, I, cause I just, I like Dio. I think Dio is a badass. Oh, but absolutely. even when Dio was gone, like Glenn Hughes did one album with Tony Iommi and it was called seventh star. And it doesn't sound like Sabbath. 
And it doesn't sound like Glenn Hughes either. It sounds well, like it belongs always, in the movie Top Gun. It always amazed me with Sabbath is the they just had a knack for finding awesome leads. I mean, granted, it's only, I mean, I want to say only Ozzy and, and Ronnie James Dio. Yeah. But only Ozzy and only Ronnie James Dio, like two of the most iconic metal dudes ever, and they just happened to front the same band, and that's how they got into music. Even yeah, on the flip side, you had Ozzy have some of the best guitars in metal in oh, the 80s. Yeah. Trying Randy Rosen. Jackie Lee is... I remember, I remember when watching Headbangers Ball... And Miracle Man came out the first time seeing Zach Wilde, and I was like, Holy "Who shit. is this motherfucker?" And now look at Zach Wilde, and you're like, "He'd probably, you know, <laughs> beat you up from looking at him wrong." But it was so funny because he's kind of skinny, big hair, and he's like, "Holy!" He was shit. the stereotypical blonde-headed front guitarist. But he didn't every... play like everybody else. Though. <laughs> no, every no, 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 no. I'm talking band. appearance. I'm oh, talking yeah, yeah. appearance. Now he's a little roided out looking and all that stuff, and hopefully he's done that naturally so he doesn't die soon. But <laughs> that is a side effect of he, doing roids. Yeah. Uh, your heart will enlarge and you will die. That is a thing. Uh, ask, uh, almost said Rick James, but Rick James did not die of, of taking steroids. It's, uh, <laughs> it's God, not Randy Macho Man Savage. Oh, no. uh, but which I always thought he would be awesome in a metal band for some reason. He just had this look, that mullet and everything. I was like, really? How did not, how did, if I had had a metal band in the 80s, Randy Macho Man would have been Man just, of War. Don't you remember them? Yes, <laughs> I remember Man of War. But, but the thing is, is, I mean, it's, again, Ozzy, Zach Wild, all those guys. Zach Wild, appearance wise. Oh yeah, they've marketed him as a pretty he, boy. He he's everything that White Snake ever wished their guys could look like. Because I mean, still of the night, the only person in the video that is from the band White Snake is David Coverdale. All the back people are actors. They were not. They weren't even in the band. Because why? The band was ugly. They were not marketable <laughs> as as. Pretty boy, 80s. I mean, hell, you had long hair. I had long hair. We, man, I remember right, I'll still, right now, Still the Night comes on. That is like. And still that, the Night is, I've analyzed it. It's like four Zeppelin songs combined because there's part cashmere, there's part black dog. Well, and it makes sense. Like every little element to it. it no, I love the song, but no, you but, like, you hear the influence and you're like, like, but it's, it's but, so great because, like, I know where that's from, I know where that's from. Right, from a scientific side. But if you look at it from an emotional side, David Coverdale has always wanted to be Robert Plant. Oh, God. Yeah. Always. So it makes sense that he was, he was, and I don't want to say steal because there are only so many music notes. And you can only arrange notes in so many different combinations. But well, it depends this, if we're talking about Eastern music or Western music. Right. But at the same time, I mean, like it's like the videos that you watch where you know, every song is dwindled down to one note, more or less. But anyway. Speaking of that, you know the song Put the Lime in the Coconut was a you know hit song? Yeah. It's the only song on the radio that played only one chord all the way through it. It's a, just plays one chord. Never For chord. Jeopardy later on. So if you ever hear what's one song that only plays one chord. Alex, I'll take uh, <laughs> crap I didn't really care to know what for it? a million. <laughs> <laughs> um, and now what our 
podcast is about. (laughs) (laughs) So apparently I just did the intro again. Um, And starting over. So, yeah, but it's, you know, it's it's just funny because like still of the night, like if there's a stepping on my Jordans thing in my life, if if still the night comes on and somebody turns the channel, like you're going to get cracked in the face. That's just. I mean, that's, that's how I feel about like Sabbath. You know, they've got the internet meme, where it's the guy standing next to a jukebox, or it's like it's actually a newspaper article. It was a real thing where uh, somebody got in a bar fight because somebody changed the jukebox in the middle of a Sabbath song, and this guy fought the guy over it and oh, completely yeah. legit. <laughs> it's worth it. Completely, you know. especially I'd love to know what it switched to. You know, what, that, what would you switch to? I mean, no, 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 no. I'm not saying that makes it right. Yeah, no, it doesn't. But it takes it from like a, well, sir, I'm going to open hand slap you in the face to, yeah, you should be taken out back and shot in the face because you just exhibited the worst level of judgment that there is to be known to mankind. So, I mean, it's, but yeah, I mean, it, it's crazy to when you look at metal because even, all right, I love White Snake as we've just established, I don't consider it metal. It was Mm. glam rock. It was a better glam rock than Poison. Poison was the most marketable glam rock. Like, it was the pinnacle of... Oh, yeah, and then all of a sudden... It was the pinnacle of how pretty can we make C.C. DeVille? Yeah. Which is a... (laughs) With makeup off, he is the ugliest hooker. Like, like he, he looks like he would work at a truck stop strip club <laughs> with no makeup on, but you put makeup on that boy back up 10 feet. You're like, hell I'll do it. You know, but that was, that's, that's really where metal died. Well, that's, that had to happen. So then you got the grunge element to come to finally kill it. But when I feel like even that, like that's it's, where it's commercialization metal. put a pretty serious nail in metal because I think back then and obviously I wasn't even alive when Poison was doing their thing but I feel like That's people one of the things you should count yourself fortunate yeah I don't feel like people <laughs> even use the word metal with them it was just glam they didn't oh, even no, say no, glam no, they, rock no, they just said glam. Glam. Was glam metal no I remember arguing so they would say with glam people. metal no okay. I remember people arguing with me that just because they had a decent guitarist and they all had long hair, they were metal. And I'm like, no, that's not the definition. The sound is your appearance has nothing to do with it. It's it was the sound. And the and while CC again, great guitarist, they I mean, they had a gimmick and they owned it and they ran with it. And Brett Michaels is still riding it. Oh yeah, that wave man. But it's it's just a matter of so it's to me I never considered it that a lot of people did but like Corey was saying you know it just it was corporatized and they saturated the market that's oh, what yeah. that's what happened you ultimately you got every day horn and I don't they cherry were, pie man that he he. I guarantee you because I've seen interviews with him on his deathbed he was still saying. I wish I'd have never written that song. And you probably got burned out on it. He did. Well, he's so I don't know if you've ever seen any interviews with him. Mm-hmm. And his his name escapes me at the moment, but he he did so he the album was going to be called Uncle Tom's Cabin. That was the name of the album. 
And he sent it in, and the record company goes, well, we need a hook. We need some sort of catchy. He It took him five minutes to write a three-minute song, and it was Cherry Pie. And he said it, it's the most regrettable five minutes of his life because they changed the album to Cherry Pie because they knew how marketable it was. They did the picture with the chick holding one on the album. He's like, man, we did every fair mall opening any of the cheesiest crap as a real musician that cares about their art that would just make you feel like you undermined what your goal was. And he did that to the point where he he had to have hated himself. And 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 I, I felt bad for the guy. You know, I I listened to some cherry pie when I you know, hell, I was in the army when that came out. And it was playing on the radio. That was back also when Alice Cooper had Poison out. Yeah. He does it all. Is that the... No, Frankenstein's the Wayne's World song, wasn't it? Yeah. I think so. Poison, I mean, Poison, again, it was a glam. That was a glam version of Alice Cooper. Oh, yeah. Very much. But I can tell you right now, the moment I heard that song, it had nothing to do with my loyalty to Alice Cooper as much as it did, I just connected with that song. But it, I, and that's always, you know, I used to kind of make fun of the whole cherry pie thing. But as my thought process evolved about how all that happened, I felt sorry for him because he was completely manipulated by the record company for selling a product. And he ended up undermining exactly what he wanted to do. And that's like we always talk about. I've got friends that are artists, your artist is the difference between an order taker and an artist. An order taker does what you pay him to do. An artist does what they want to do, and they help you buy it. Well, see, the one thing from an industry standpoint, people don't realize the business, music business has always been a business. <clears throat> Even when they were making singles, it all of a sudden. No, it's an, it's an industry. And, and so it's, it's not. Right. People, people are like, I want, to, I want to, you know, go, I want to be signed and this and stuff. It's like. They're there to make money. They don't give a fuck about you. You're disposable. Yes. Once you run your course, they will walk away from you. Your contract's up. They've made their money. And we well, just like when we go to we went to a son studio and listen talking mm-hmm. about Elvis and like they didn't give a fuck about Elvis. That mm-hmm. dude until they kept pushing and pushing and pushing. And like, we'll call him in here. And then that song was a hit that for, I remember when this, what the first song was. And after that, it was like Oh, we can make money off this guy. Let's let's keep going. You well, know? and that's what's cool about uh, like bands like Metallica that own their material. And then there was somebody else that bought back all their material not too long ago. Well, I know the Crows fought for their publishing because I mean Rick Riven took a lot of guys publishing like when when he owned you know Def Jam and Def America and that you know that was a big fight because a lot of people didn't realize getting to the business side again. A lot of those bands didn't understand that they're publishing. They got paid for publishing, too. So there's two things you get paid for. You get paid for the song, right? You own the song. And every time it plays on the radio, you get paid. And they didn't know that they got money from part of that. And so uh, that's how they got um, Gordy Berry. From, what's it, Gordy Berry from Motown? That's yeah. how he got rich. And nobody from Motown got any money because he owned all their publishing. And so... Uh, well, it's... <clears throat> I mean, in what you're saying is it's more or less you made a deal with the devil. Yeah. Right, right. Well, and that's usually that's, the death of a lot of bands is when one band member discovers licensing. And right. then they end up owning that entire artistic 
collaboration, then the rest of the band is basically just given their share yeah. rather than them that's earning bands, it together. Bands tour forever because that's the only they got paid. Now, it's like when, right. That's the only way they actually made money was to tour. They weren't back then. It was kind of like the old TV shows, like Gilligan's Island. Mm-hmm. Those those actors got nothing for doing the show, and there was zero residual. None. When they were done with that, it didn't matter if they aired those shows a billion times, which they did, and I loved them for it. It they didn't get another dot. I mean, Bob Denver, I'm pretty sure died broke, but nowadays. And, and again, it's still selling selling your soul to the devil. But nowadays, you could write one hit. And if it's marketed right and it's sold right, you could never have to work again if you live within your means. Oh. You can make millions off of one hit song and and ride that out. And it, it, it's got a lot to do with, of course, the Internet. Well, think about it. We will world, rock you. We world. will rock you. Every time they play in a, every stadium, they're getting paid for that. And think of like the you know, families of everybody from Queen is still making residuals off of that. Just that boom, boom, cock over mm-hmm. and over. Just that well, one little and that's, bit. And that's the thing. I mean. And that's dude, not going away. Oh, well, why would it? it well, well, I'm saying. You're, but you're talking to the difference between a one-hit wonder and one of possibly oh. the most iconic songs to ever come out of I was going to say, if you were going to write a universally usable opening song for anything. I mean, freaking any, like you could open a porn with, we will rock you if you could afford the licensing. Oh yeah. Which at this point, because of how, I mean, that song is, it's, it's an animal. It's just, it's turned into, we love this song, but we can't get the licensing for it because it's so insane. Well, and that's what Corey and I've talked about for some movie production stuff is, We've had those conversations because I was like, man, I'd love for like the horror movie thing. There's like there's a scene that I have envisioned for the end of the movie and a song that I want. And I'm like, we can't afford that. And it would just dude, it would just it would set that. It would be in my mind again, the mental picture I have, it would be the perfect ending. But it is crazy when you look at both ends of the spectrum. The artist the artists selling themselves to this industry oh, yeah. to be able to make a dollar. And then that industry raping anyone that wants to use it, but they didn't even create it. All they did was market it. Yeah, here, uh, interest, another piece of useless trivia, WKRP in Cincinnati. I don't know if you ever watched it, but we grew up on it. Dude, Lonnie Anderson still, I'm in shock that she looks as good as she does. Well, you know, on when it came on the air, what was it the 70s, early 80s? They played Zeppelin and everything else, but all the reruns have generic music on it because they can't afford all the licensing for every song that they played. I mean, they played tons of contemporary stuff before people got all, we got to get paid for this. And it's, it's interesting because you go back and watch them now, none of the music is all... Oh, yeah, I hadn't seen an episode in forever, so I didn't realize. And it, it's weird that you can retro that because it seems like once that's established, like, look, we've... It's all like contracts, us. man. It's like whatever they decide the contract is. Now, until it gets to, what is it, uh, is it 75 years in a day or something? Or or the con- uh, copyrights go <laughs> so, away? the copyright? When the copyrights go away, things become creative commons. Like, I can go play... 
like Jingle Bells or Beethoven. If I go play it, I don't, and I record it, I don't have to pay royalties on it because it's past. Because nobody well, because cares. Of, well, well, because no, it's old it enough. It's in Creative Commons. Well, I understand, but that's the the idea of seventy five years is. Well, hell, by that point, nobody well, cares. Well, the seventy five in the one day is. You or your family get that one extra day to renew your copyright so that you can get another 75 yeah. years. Then oh, it becomes public domain. Was, so re- you do get a copyright renewal. Yeah. Okay, it's I not automatically public domain because that's why things from a lot of music from, let's say, like the late 1800s, not all that's public that's domain. That's one of those yet. I didn't know. The one day is for I didn't know. Basically, that's yeah, like, my well, understanding. Man, you had an extra day. You yeah, should. we gave you that extra day. You I, forgot to hit the renew of, button. Hey, uh, guys, like like Michael Jackson who buy the rights to Happy Birthday. Every time you say yeah. Happy Birthday, you actually owe Michael Jackson money. I just find it ironic after like 400,000 days <laughs> that that one day makes a difference. Yeah. Well, it's like you talk about Michael Jackson. Didn't he own the licensing for basically the Beatles? So Paul McCartney told Michael Jackson to make sure on your publishing so what did Michael do? He went and bought the Beatles publishing. Oh, yeah. <laughs> well. Well, Paul McCartney, I think, has bought it back since then. But at the same of- time, as an investment thing, that's why would you? If I could afford to buy the Beatles, the Beatles yeah. licensing. You'd be set for life. Immediate return on your investment. Right, right. I mean, that's a license to print money. Who mm-hmm. needs a Porsche where you can own Beatles music? Literally. A Porsche. Okay, so that, that's not even... That would be the equivalent of buying Porsche, the whole company. Yeah. Well, I you could, buy the Beatles, and then you've got Porsche money to buy... From the derivatives. So yeah. Just, yeah. Like, oh, dude, I made that in two days. So you, I mean, the CEO of Amazon would be like, yo, man, I borrow a dollar. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I mean, you would you would yeah. be the richest person today, in the today, I mean, Beatles music still... Oh, yeah. ...everywhere everywhere and it keeps coming back up with you know i think people sometimes forget about the beatles or i know my generation we don't even think about the beatles until ringo gets knighted and he's now sir ringo star as of a couple months ago that is the worst porn star (laughs) yeah (laughs) sir i think ringo star had a certain ring to it but when you add the sir up front that sounds like the worst fast food chain ever (laughs) so where are we going to dinner uh sir i hear uh, sir uh, ringo stars open what time do they close man it's kind of getting late well they're open till midnight they do they've uh, ripped off taco bell they do fourth meal um, it's, you know, like, what do they, what would you serve it, Sir Ringo Starr, you know? What, but it's... It sounds like onion rings to me, but I don't know. But it's, so, you know, what's funny is I grew up listening. Um, so my mom was, was very, who, uh, and I have to attribute her to my introduction to music, because I remember being a kid, listening to Leonard Skinner and Molly Hatchet and... Black Sabbath and Marshall Tucker. I mean, my first cat was named Marshall after the Marshall Tucker band. I mean, that was my second pet ever. I got that cat when I was probably three years yeah, old. Yeah, I cat named Ozzy, but, you know. I had a cat named Ozzy also. Um, I wonder where that name came from. Um, Ozzy and Harriet. Um, but it's, you know, my introduction to music was early and and that's kind of what made me want to talk about this a little bit and that's why I expressed it to Brian. So I'm kinda glad that he picked it out out of our 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 hat of 
topics. God, we could talk about this for days, though. No, no, I <laughs> could make I a could, whole show about that. Dude I, could, dude, I could make like a six-month episode after episode after episode about this. Is is the emotional connection to music that I don't think exists anymore. And, and again, I think, uh, and when my parents got divorced when I was two, I was looking for something to connect with. And then I, my grandfather, my dad's dad, was a huge part of my life. And and he, he ended up with cancer, and he killed himself because the cancer was so bad when I was four. So I was really looking for some sort of, something to ground me in life that I gave a shit about. And I think that's where the music really came from was, was that filled that void and music had, and I hate to say it, it sounds kind of cliche, but it had more soul. It really did. Yes. Music even then was a corporation and it was, it was big money and they were, they were looking to sign bands and, the machine existed. But the machine existed in a way that the artistry was still there that you could appreciate it because today, I'm not going to say that today's musicians aren't artists, but they lack that soul. artistry. That they they lack a that, feeling. Right. They're, especially computers. Computers have really changed a lot of that. But I do enjoy a lot of the newer music. But you, But it also goes back to... I mean, rock really didn't get to express itself until the 70s. It was very suppressed in the 60s because of, you know, again, we've touched on before, society. Society wanted to hold it down because, oh, my God, like Elvis is thrusting his pelvis on stage. You know? And that was a problem. That was, a, and like, really? That, you know, for us looking back, we're like... Okay, you're freaking out about Janet Jackson's nipple at the show, and I'm thinking that's nothing because it's just a nipple. But yet, let's let's drive it all the way back to Elvis gyrating. Well, Paganini back when you, I mean, the violinist, he they considered him a rock star of the time. He had long hair, flamboyant. Yeah. They thought he made a deal with the devil because he's doing Inve Mom. Well, Inve Momskin is obviously inspired by Paganini, but. Well, I he would was, imagine was, so, you know, but considering the years. Even then, it's the same kind of thing. I mean, this was going back hundreds of years. It's pushing, it's pushing a concept to a, out he there. He was a sex symbol rock god. Well, of, it's just being outlandish. Yeah. It really is. And flamboyant with how, I mean, like anybody, uh, I hate to say anybody because I can't play violin, but if you're playing the violin, it's very easy to eventually play notes. It's another to fucking own it. You know, just come out and just, like, look at me. Like, Elton John, he plays the piano, and he's he is, and this is probably going to be taken wrong, he's a flamboyant Billy Joel. Yeah. That's all he really is. And I don't want to I don't want to take anything away from Elton John because— Well, he came in the glam rock era of, of Bowie and everybody else. Right. He threw on some star glasses and a glitter jacket. And, of course, back then, of course, he was straight, you know. And it's unfortunate that he had to live his life the way he did until he was comfortable enough to come out and be himself. It's— because of he was worried about the public's perception and would it bankrupt him if he came out as gay, just like Rob Halford. It um, took forever. How did, how people, did we not know Rob Halford was gay? Well, you know what's funny? <laughs> That's the thing is, like, I, yeah, Turbo Lover. 
Yeah, cool. Dude, really dude, that was a huge change. Leather. I remember him coming out there, all the other guys in regular leather, and he's got just the, the leather X strap thing on with that little, like, uh, the, the, the cap. The little cap, but it's from Police Academy. I always think the little song from Police Academy when they from went the to, Blue Oyster Bar. Yes, but anyway, he's a leather boy, you know, and he comes on the bike, and I was like, I went back and going, Dude, I remember... But you're at that show and you're like, metal, but... I remember rumors in high school, I mean, again, in the 80s, rumors in the high school that Rob Halford married Barry Gibb. I'm talking in the 80s. And again, I love the Bee Gees. The Bee Gees, uh, they're a love-hate kind of thing. Like, you either love them or you hate them. But I, I mean, it, it always found it funny that Barry Gibb is one of the manliest looking men the beard, the hair. He's just manly looking. Well, he was the 70s. And know. then he starts singing. And you're like. What? <laughs> like, I'm sorry. I was trying to listen to Barry Gibb. I'm not sure what happened. But it's it's kind of that moment, you know, where it's like, no, that can't be Barry Gibb. But so I'd heard those rumors as a kid, you know, that Barry Gibb was gay and. It turned out he was. Rob Halford turned out that he was gay, which I didn't give a shit. But it was a big deal back then. Oh, but yeah. again, it's it's all in the delivery. It's all in it's all in that personality. Because I mean, like we talk about with comedy, I can write my material that I use that I can deliver successfully, and I can give it to someone else, and they don't own it. Well, you got to own that material, and if you don't. You're gonna fall on your face. Well, it's just like Bob Dylan wrote "All on the Lush Tower," but he he also recognized when Hendrix did it. He's like, "I wrote that oh, song. One. I wrote that song for him." Like he he knows that Hendrix owned. Okay, owned. the best example of that in life, and I hope you know where I'm going with this. Guess I just want to see if you. I mean, we think a lot of like. I, I hope you're not talking about knocking on heaven's door. No, like no, 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 no. Come on, man. Really? Come on. Blinded by the light. The Bruce Springsteen version of that song, it, I struggle to yeah, get through it. I've never heard the Bruce Springsteen version of it. It, it is. It sounds like I don't need to. <laughs> no. I, for years and years and years, I didn't know Manford Man didn't do that song originally. That Manford Man took, like, the equivalent of a rusted out old piece of shit car in the woods and turned it into the coolest race car ever known to mankind. And that's the way I, I mean, even again, that's another one of those songs. Like if I hear the Manfred Mann version of Blinded by the Light, I'm like instantly beating on the steering wheel and smiling and feeling good. I can tell you right now, Bruce Springsteen's version, and he wrote it. And I give that man a lot of credit. He's an extremely talented guy. That was a terrible, 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 one more terrible <laughs> version <laughs> Of the song, and I didn't know for years and years again that 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 he did the original. I was like, "Well, I got to go check this out." We're like six notes in. I'm like, "Who is this?" <laughs> like, how did okay? And even better yet, how did Manfred Mann hear that song and go, "Dude, this is this is there's something." To, he had to have connected with the lyrics. Do you remember uh, Tesla doing a song called "Little Susie"? Oh yeah, yeah, that's, that's a, a cover, cover song. song. I I I've collected vinyl. I picked a band. I think it's like PhD. I think it's a band. It's like it's a weird seventies electronic prog rock band. And I was listening to it, and I heard that coming on. I was like, "Holy crap!" 
Okay. Tesla covered that. That's not. I. I, uh, I if we want, you I'm going to bring one up just to see if you know. I would imagine you know. <laughs> Quiet riot. Come oh, on, feel the noise. Because oh, yeah. <laughs> it was a Slade song. Yes, and you know that was recorded in one take. No, but did you know I the Tiger was a demo? It was not. No. That's not supposed to be the real version. They never finished it. And um, and don't you forget about me. The song from Breakfast Club. The reason that has he sings la 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 la. Because he hated that song and did not write a second verse to it. He did not want to do that song, the lead singer. But they did that anyway. He just, I'll just bullshit, he, bullshit he a second it. version. And you know what? It's, that's their. It's an iconic song. But that, it's, so, yeah, I didn't know. I mean, I, granted, now when Metal Health came out, we were talking about metal earlier. When Quiet Riot came out, man, I was like, hell, all right, hell. This is this sums me up right here. I was only 16. I was a bag boy at Kroger, and that came out. And of course, I'd never heard Slade sing "Come On, Feel the Noise." And then I found out later on that part of the record deal was to the record company made them do "Come On, Feel the Noise" for whatever reason. I never got a, and that's something maybe we should look up just for our yeah. own edification. But it sounds like they owned it. It like, right, like maybe they owned the rights to it, <laughs> and it was easy to get a cover. And they thought Quiet Riot, just with their sound, could put it. And they just did take it to the next level, right? And they twisted it, you know, pull a man for man. I mean, if we're gonna say that, yeah. but it's, um, but apparently they did not want to do it, and they told them they're like, "You, we're gonna come in and do this, and you get one take, and we're gonna lay it down, and we're gonna own it, but you get one take." And that's, but of course they had to play it at every freaking concert after that. I don't know why they thought, like, we're going to do it one time and never do it again. That's not a thing when you're a band, not a successful yeah. band. No, especially as big as that song was. Oh I remember I was always in the roller skating ring. You hear that song? It's it's not. Yeah. Do you know what roller skating rings are? I think I've heard of them. I saw it in a movie once. Yeah, I just, I mean, again, that's another one of those that if it comes on, but I, th- I think it has a lot to do with, you know, for like metal for you was taboo. You couldn't listen oh, to All it. music was. I actually learned to play music before I actually knew what music was. Does that make right. sense? No, no, no. Yeah. I mean, my, like my you dad, learned the theory of it but didn't understand. I remember at six years old, my dad would take me to the church and taught me how to play drums and keep a beat while he practiced piano. And so I was his drum drum machine. I learned to play drums. And this is where the conversation's about to take a horrible turn. Well, it's, all, it's, a, it's a different turn. <laughs> no, it's just what you said. You learned to play it. But it's interesting. That you he, learned to play an instrument before you got to hear real music. Of course. It's sad. The meat whistle came to mind. but <laughs> <laughs> And the fact that you went to a Christian school just kind of. Well, you, you, that. I mean, you know, but people listening doesn't know. I grew up in a very conservative household. We weren't allowed to listen. No, to no, no. So right. my influence on music growing up, my rock music before me and you spent. Before I corrupted Christmas, you, that's fine. I was the it. monkeys. And what's funny is that I love the monkeys because I could watch them on TV. But and that's why I think music and comedy really well, connect and with I, me. And I think the monkeys were, were a great example of corporatized music. Oh, yeah. But because it was, it was, it was, I mean, it was the original boy band. Right. But, but where I was going with that is it wasn't like shaming your childhood. It was, again, it was about an emotional connection to music. And I think what it was is the fact that you, like, if you, if you told a kid 
you can't have chocolate, you can't have chocolate, you can't have chocolate, you can't have chocolate. And then at 12 or 13 years old, they go spend, have all the chocolate. They go to someone's house for two weeks because this is the equivalent. And then they're like, no, man, we got all kind of chocolate. Yeah, this like, is a got, real thing. Like, it exists. Like we got crates of chocolate, and we can we can we can listen to chocolate all no, day I long. Remember, <laughs> so I, remember, I mean, it's that's kind of what happened, and I think that's why maybe. Well, you were my outlet from getting away from. You, you were, were my right. oasis from that, and of course, because I, I was allowed to kind of do whatever within reason, but I was also taught judgment and things like right. that. I wasn't just feral, oh, no. completely feral. Well, it's okay. You. All but, your Christmas money. I remember times going and you would spend easily a few hundred bucks on CDs or tapes. And we would walk out of the store. <laughs> I'd have one and you'd have like a stack of like, I don't know, 20 or 30 CDs. And like, right. But I had also had to work for that dollar. No, no, no. no yeah. Not no, 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 wrong with it. I do, I, those are my no, memories. I remember us um, going to Camelot and I bought one of those suitcase tape I holders. That. Held 120 cassettes. I bought the case and we filled it up while we were there. Paid for it all and walked out. And you could pay your house off from all the millennials buying cassettes now. Yeah, well, you could tell them because it's interesting you said Camelot because Corey gave me a cassette drawer and it was all just hair metal because I, I dig a lot of music from the 80s. Some of them weren't even opened, but they had Camelot. And I'm like, oh, well, like, what's this? Because my exposure to music store was Blockbuster Music and Tower Records. Right, when it was ruined. Yes. Like after Turtles, it was done. And I had I had a cassette that it I, was I remember, White Lion, and yeah. it had a Turtles wrapper. And I was like, what, "What the heck is Turtles?" Oh, I got vinyl that's got Turtle stickers on. I remember it's when like, back, like nice memories you pulled out. Go. Oh, I remember Turtles. when Backstage opened back. They opened Backstage Music, and it was a kind of a knockoff of Turtles, but Turtles had kind of gone away at that point, and they did the stamps. And all that stuff. And I mean, oh God, man, I don't think it was that long ago I threw away some turtle stamps. But it's, yeah, once Blockbuster took over, there was a little piece of me that died when I couldn't go into turtles. I remember, dude, I mean, I remember buying on Highway 5 in Marietta on a Saturday afternoon, Rick Springfield cassette. And I was so excited. Because I was probably 11 or 12, and I had saved up, you know, $7.85 or whatever it was back then. I did the same. My first cassette I bought from a friend, because I couldn't get to the store, was Scandal with it Patty helped. Smith. I had $5. It was all nickels and dimes. And I got my buddy Rob, and he sold me this. And I bought the vinyl now, because even though the album's so-so, the Warriors is still a good song. But I'm like... That is my memory. I am a warrior, the, dude. I that's my first. That song like, so much. I remember like saving up every little nickel. It's just so funny I that I just Ross. now <laughs> found out you had a music dealer. Like most kids had drug dealers, stuff like that. Corey had a music dealer. Oh yeah. <laughs> like I can't, I can't go to the store and buy this because I'm supervised. But I can buy it from you when no one's looking. Oh, I, <laughs> I take many things off the radio because. Well, we all did that, man. I remember that, like. You'd listen to them, and they're like, yeah, and coming up next is this. And you're like, damn, all right, how many commercials? Right. You're like, exactly. And then what hey, you, you learned is, is just to record it and edit. Like, that was the first thing you learned to edit was your cassette. Well, well, my, double cassette. well that's, how I, that's how I learned editing as well. And when I first started video, I learned cassette to cassette. But I would record off the radio. And I would hit it early because I was so paranoid I would miss part of the song. Better to get my too much than box not enough. would have another cassette and I could do 
cassette to cassette and trim. Yeah. And then I would pull that out and make a copy for my friends so right. we would both I have mean, two copies. Which I, is ironic because you still use that same mentality now with a computer to be able to edit stuff with mm-hmm. paint or other arbitrary software that is not truly made for editing, but you know how to manipulate it and make it edit. If you were but, talking about um, connection with music, because obviously me growing up in music is a little different connection, but the fact that learning how to play songs definitely connected different. I, it's weird because it's like, at, I, don't, I don't know how to really explain. Well, I, remember, I remember getting piano lessons from my dad when I was a kid. And I, and I, and I, I was frustrated because his mentality and his ability to teach were not great. He yeah, because your dad played, my dad played in bands. My dad could play yeah. bass and guitar and piano. And he's like, your dad, he's very multi-talented when it comes to music. But his ability to teach it is nil, like zero. And then as much as I loved music as a kid, I didn't, I didn't really want to play when I was around him. Now, I do, I mean, I remember joining the band in middle school. That's right, you played trombone, didn't you? Yep, played trombone, played, I tried Trumpet, baritone, tuba over here. I played, I played, (laughs) I tried to mess around with saxophone a little bit and then played drum kit a little bit and stuff like that. And I experimented and I ditched it once I got to high school and they're like, you have to be in the marching band. I was like, I bet I don't. (laughs) I bet I don't have to be in the marching band. So I did one just to confirm that I didn't want to do it, and then I I bailed on it. But, yeah, I mean, it's kind of like, to me, it's the equivalent of um, sports. I enjoy, I've played football, baseball, basketball. I've played all kinds of sports, tennis, golf, you name it. I've just about played it. I don't want to watch it. I do do not have any desire to watch it. You're preaching to the choir. <laughs> but, but there's a little bit. That's where, something you probably won't hear on this is uh, anything about sports, <laughs> except for a pure hatred. Right. I like, think, I love racing did cars. Did I just alienate half our audience before we even started? No, no. I mean, it's not like we're going to just sit on here and bash it. It's just we I'm don't right? have any. Well, I mean, that's fine. But I love racing cars, but I don't watch auto racing. It's to me that's a that living vicarious thing. I don't want to do that, or uh, being a voyeur, or um, however you want to describe it. It's just not my style. But yeah, I, I think, like I said, for well, that's the same. Like for a long time, I hated playing cover music because I wanted to write my own. So today, I was like, well, I was playing cover music growing up. I was being a voyeur. Well, that's what you know, like when we went on our hike, and Chris was talking about that. At some point. You're just a tool. Yeah. And I don't mean that in the classic sense of like, dude, he's a tool. I mean that you're in the, you're, you're performing a task. Yeah. You're up there. You're given the illusion. And now there's some good, good cover bands. The Four Horsemen, man. Metal. Have you seen those guys? Mm-hmm. Four Horsemen, Metallica. <laughs> we went to see them six months ago or so uh, up in Woodstock. And dude. Is that the guy that also does a Megadeth? Tribute to? Yeah, so I'm talking. I talked it. No, 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 no. The lead singer. Yeah. The lead singer was recruited in. And I'm talking to him after the show. And we're just sitting around shooting a bull. And he's like, they got nine to fives. This isn't a lifestyle for them as far as like a oh. livelihood. And I, and I was like, man. I was like, I'm sitting here. And I said, like, I'm, you know, Metallica fan from way back. And Megadeth, too. 
was like, I could hear Dave Mustaine in your van, in your voice. I was like, it just sounded very Dave. And I was like, I, I really connected with that well beyond the Metallica stuff. And he goes, that's funny. Cause I'm in a metal or in a Megadeth cover band as well. You know, take something from being at, I played in a Weezer tribute band for 11 years. Some of my friends played in a Nirvana tribute band, right? The singer Blake, he started sounding like Kurt because he sang so much of that and tried to emulate that. Then when he he sat in with us for the song, I think it was Smashing Pumpkins, he sang, it sounded like Kurt trying to sing Smashing Pumpkins because he'd been singing he in Kurt's style. himself. Yeah, so it's, it's, it's funny that that happens and you can hear it because he probably tried so much to emulate Dave Mustaine's unique voice that when he did Metallica, it kind of... He can't not do it. Yeah. Right. It he's owned it at that point. Yeah. But they, man, they put on a hell of a show. And their goal, and they said this at the show... I can keep an eye on them. Their, their, their goal <laughs> is to not give you the Metallica live um, experience, is to give you the Metallica album oh. experience. Well, let's yeah. doing the Weezer stuff. The craziest thing from a personal experience, being a part of it... I mean, I was a decent Weezer fan. I love the Blue Album. But we would play the songs and people would come up to us and be like, oh my God, I can't believe you guys played the Blue Album straight through or y'all played my favorite song and said, what's your favorite Weezer? Like they would treat us like the band, the way they'd act toward us. And it got kind of creepy. and like, I'm just playing some Weezer tunes. But they... I'm here to make a hundred bucks, <clears throat> Yeah, get a few free beers and have a good time. But people, people really acted, really gravitated towards you. Um... Well, and again, so and that's a that's a great example. People who do that, yeah, it comes off a little creepy, but they clearly have an emotional oh, yeah. attachment to the music. Oh, I mean to the music, and I mean, and it's and that's one something that I feel like, and again, it's in my perspective, and it could be one hundred percent wrong. I don't know that that is happening at a level that it used to because, again, I feel like music is disposable. Now, there's some new, yeah. like, highly suspect. I don't know if you've, you've I think there's it. still good music, but it's been a while since I heard one of my friends say, I just went to this concert and it was the greatest experience I've ever had. Now, well, or and even heard this new song yeah. on the radio that, like, I heard highly suspect on the radio and I was like, dude, that I connect with that song. The lyrics, the meaning behind the lyrics, which is as you evolve and you're listening to music, at first you're attracted to the beat and just occasional words and stuff like that. Like un, unless you're a Tool fan, because Tool has a little bit of a political message behind it. Not, you know, but but there's there's as you get older, you hear these lyrics and then you under stand or you think you do the perspective of the way the song was written and what their motivation was and the message they're trying to put out there. I mean, again, let's go back to White Snake. White all the all the White Snake stuff. I mean it was, was sex. Right. He was <laughs> referencing his penis when he named the band White Snake. I mean, it's he was, you know, I hear it was not quite the snake that he made it out to be, but that was his wife, ex-wife who, you know, looked good on the hood of a jack saying that. So she was politically motivated to say it wasn't. But again, you know, slide it in. Really? You know, still of the night. I mean, here we go again. That's rejection. But, you know, it's still... <laughs> 
it's it's just funny. I just always wonder about, like I said, I, and that's why I was getting back to the thing about once you finally connected, and I hate to say real music, once you got out and you saw mainstream music, you had been wanting that connection so long that when you actually heard it, there was a lot of emotion behind that and that freedom that you that you had and you felt made you connect at a deeper level with it because you had been held back from it. For me, it was a bit of a coping mechanism. Dude, I can tell you Queen's greatest hits. I have cleaned when I was a kid, cleaned my mom's house to that damn album so many times. I'd put it on, crank it up to the point where I, I mean, like a gang could have come in and killed us all and we'd have never heard them. And it's, and that's, that's, you know, sit in my room and listen to Alice Cooper, Welcome to My Nightmare, eight track. Cause that was the first way I owned it was eight track. I remember you having the Kiss vinyl. I was always, always kind of envious. Of course, so I one of my birthdays, <laughs> I got Kiss Rock and Roll Over, Love Gun, and Kiss Alive 2, and a Daisy Red Rider. It's a good birthday. Eye, you shoot your eye out. <laughs> I can still see out of both eyeballs. Um, so I mean, yeah, it was, a, and I still have those albums. But it's, and that's why you know, again, like I said, it just to me, it's. I hate to say it again because it's a cliche, in my opinion, is the the heart and soul of of what the music is. But it's just I I, I wonder how. You know, is that something that can ever be regained? Have we evolved so far that music is disposable? And what? And if it is able to be regained, how how is that achieved? I don't think that dispo- the fact that it's disposable can't be denied. I think that the way that we get our music today has changed so greatly because we live in such an immediate uh, satisfaction, you know, in the sense that... An artist cranks out a you song, know, and a day later, it's instant gratification. It's It was what I was looking for, talking about the photography side of instant gratification. You guys used to shoot film. Now I can take a picture. I know exactly what it is right now. If it's not good, I take another one. Music. Crank out a song. It may be a hit for a day. If it's not good tomorrow, crank out another song two days later, and you just, you're just churning it out. It's not that we're being given too much volume of music but that instant connection well, to music because usually candy. the it's it is candy you know a music video hits youtube instantly it goes viral especially if it's a popular artist that artist may not even have a new album out they just cranked out a new music video and that's it you know well you didn't and even I, get anything I, I think, new and I, don't, I think you touched on something and you may not even realize what you touched on it's the act of obtaining it that made the connection. Because when you and I, I remember, we oh, would we go to, to Greens. <laughs> we'd go to Greens in Carrollton and we'd go buy music. We it was, a, it was an event. You got in the car, you went to a location, and you had that desire and that want list, and you were, you were set out. That was, a, that was a goal for the day. I'm going to buy this music. Well, I think that's one of the reasons why like, me and my buddy Brett enjoy buying vinyl is for that same reason. And it's not that I listen to my vinyl all the time. I enjoy the fact that, like, or Brian, everyone goes somewhere and it's like, they got vinyl crap. I end up buying vinyl. So if yeah, we Miami, always end up finding a music store somewhere. We make a point. We Studios, have to like, stomp. I'm buying a piece of vinyl from Sun Studio. And part of it is, like, that connection. Like, I went to the store. 
I'm spending my money. I'm going home with music. And I tried that. So Beth had heard, uh, I think it was Osmosis, Ozzy. And I thought, man, we'll just go buy that CD. And again, it's a generational thing. It's, um, and I thought, well, I'll just go buy that CD today. That'll be awesome. And we'll, we'll get it. We'll own it this afternoon and we'll be done with it. I went, I'm telling you, man, we spent all afternoon. And nobody had that CD in stock. Nobody. I went to the mall. I went to Best Buy. I went everywhere. Nobody had it. And then when recently we were in Carrollton for uh, Mayfest, and there's a used CD place down there near where you used to take guitar lessons as a kid, and they had they had vinyl, they had used cassettes, they had used CDs. And when I walked in, I was like, I'm leave, I'm going to buy something. I knew, and I found Soundgarden, Super Unknown, which my old one was just destroyed. Of course. And, and well, as it should be, because you should have played it until it broke. Man, please, <laughs> exactly. If I got if I got residuals every time, like if they had paid me to play that CD, I had I would have long since retired. But so I bought it, and and again, it it brought back that that. Hey man, we're here, and I, I mean, I even mentioned it the other day. Like I'm going back with my little list. I was talking about it earlier today. And, and and look for some good UCDs, cause and that's interesting. You know, for my childhood, I'm I'm part of the Napster generation. We are responsible, um, and I, and I think you guys I are partake, too as well. I, I partake. We downloaded <laughs> like MX, peer to peer. Yeah, but I just did the news groups. When I talked about viruses. Yeah. Well, that was more nerdy, I guess. The one time, <laughs> way more nerdy. The one time in your life you didn't have to worry about viruses from an interaction. But for me, it was hey, like, hey, I got penicillin. It's all good. I still, I still would beg my parents. You know, like a kid saying, "I want Dairy Queen." I would say, you know, if we would go to Blockbusters to get movies, the Blockbuster we went to across the street had Blockbuster music. I'd say, "I want a cassette." And I also, you know, and I'll say. For me, I didn't know that CDs were in the 80s. I thought CDs were invented in the mid-90s because mm-hmm. I couldn't. I didn't start collecting CDs until maybe 95 because my collection started on cassette because I guess maybe they were cheaper when I was a kid or it was just easier. I don't know. One of, one of the most, I guess, memorable moments that I have about CDs and it was one of the first times I was ever impressed by like a collection. I was probably 14, 15 years old. It was mid 80s. And then CDs hadn't been out long and they were like $25 a piece in the mid 80s, which now would be like $45. Mom had a boyfriend. He was into dirt bikes. He had a BMW. Uh, his name was Bill. Instantly cool guy with me because he had a dirt bike and, he, and a cool BMW. And we go to his house, and I'm looking around, and he's got a wall rack full of CDs. I'm talking hundreds of CDs. I'm like, holy crap. Like, And there were that many CDs out there. <laughs> no. You know what's funny is, is, and I thought about this the other day. You remember they tried to replace CDs with mini disc? I remember you, that. And I remember going to, I can't remember if it was a Turtles or a Blockbuster on 41, just south of uh, Cumberland. And they had a whole wall. They, they, they had 
tapes and CDs in the rest of the store, and then they had a wall that were the mini discs. And I looked at them, and I was like, yeah, I'm going to just hang on a minute on that one. <laughs> I'm going to just keep buying CD. Like, I just got a CD player. I was like, are you kidding me? Like, well, it was like LaserDisc came and, get, came oh. and went very fast. LaserDisc were the, just giant CDs. Well, LaserDisc, the annoying part for them is most of them you had to flip them over. Yeah. Well, I have a couple. I got. I found one at a flea market. It was Unforgiven on LaserDisc. I was like, well, not only is it a pretty good movie, it's like I have a LaserDisc in my office. And I popped it in. I was like, God, this sucks. <laughs> <laughs> you can see why everybody hated it. Because it was, it was two discs and it was three sides to watch one movie. Right. It was annoying. Yeah, and it's like intermission. Oh, like, yeah. I don't need, you know, a disc, a disc that's... <laughs> This big, you know, what, 12 inches, isn't it? Give or Ten take, and a half, yeah. something like that. It was about the size of whatever vinyl is. And I'm like, really? And I remember it was a big to-do, man. Like, oh, it's not VHS, the quality's so much higher. I'm like, but your I TV? popped in my first laser disc. I was like, Look, give, me, give me my VHS back. This was worse. <laughs> well, and what's funny is, is, and I remember it being marketed as better quality. Yeah. But the TV still sucked. Oh, yeah. That's like, no, we never addressed that. Like, hey, we have this uh, great format for you, but guess what? The thing you're actually going to view it on, because it's not like you're going to just hold the disc up to your face and it's just instantly <laughs> better. Like, yeah, I, I see what you mean here. This laser disc is pretty awesome. It's, it's you're viewing it through a crappy TV. Well, this I mean, sounds like a, a new topic we should uh, but, pick up at a. But yeah, it's so old formats with <laughs> archaic but yeah, delivery I mean, methods. I guess in summation is is you know is is the emotional connection to music that inspires people, you know, or lets you wallow in your like Brian and I talked about earlier. You can have, you can start off having a bad day and you're like, you know what, I feel it. I'm just going to throw in something good, and I'm going to pull myself out of this and just have a cool day. Or you want to wallow in that mood. And you know what disc to go pull and drop in the CD player, and you can wallow in that mood the oh, rest yeah. of the day. Is that going away? Is it? I think it is because I. I just know, don't see people doing that with Taylor Swift. No, and I, I don't think today's music could give you that effect because mm. I think today's music lacks emotion. Because for me, you know, I have a bad day, and I am fortunate enough that. My exposure to metal, I have all these genres inside of metal that I can take. So I have a bad day. I can, if I have a really bad day, I throw on some Napalm Death or I can gore. throw on some, some Metallica <laughs> hey, or something you like that. You haven't been to a Gore show. Have you been oh, to a yeah. Gore show yet? Yes. Okay. Good. I was in the back, so my clothes stayed <clears throat> clean. Mine didn't. Um, <laughs> I got to see them put a hatchet through OJ's head. That was the time I saw him. And got, oh, Orange just squirted all over me. Oh, yeah. But uh, as as we're kind of wrapping this idea up, I just want to share one moment to my music emotion. Probably the craziest moment being in a band, cover band, was playing in the Masquerade. It was probably a few thousand people upstairs at a beer festival. We're just playing cover songs. We finished with Killing in the Name of and watching that whole audience go nuts. And I'm sitting there going, this isn't even my song. And seeing everybody just go nuts. And it was the craziest feeling in the world. How inspirational. No, Even though the... We're not the band, but everybody can just love that song and the energy in the room for that moment. I'm like, I want to bottle this up, this feeling. And well, I can it. tell you right now, just, I mean, and I hate to drag it out, but you brought up that song, Killing in the Name of. 
I can tell you the very first time I heard it, I ran a convenience store in 93 and I was closing out the books for the day and Will Pendarvis from 99X played it at like 11 o'clock at night. And the moment it ended, he said, I think we're going to hear that again. And then he played it again. And my brother was working for me at the time and I was 22, he was 16. And we're sitting there going through the books for the day and it ended and he and he goes, we're playing that again. He played it like eight times in a row. He wow. played Killing in the Name of. And, and the message didn't resonate with me so much as the beat and the delivery, like his ability to deliver those lyrics, man. It Again, it would grab you. It would latch onto you. And, uh, oh, and then yeah. as time went by and I listened to the message, that it changed completely. But, yeah, that's a that is a that song is extremely powerful it really that is i don't want to say it's up there with we will rock you but by god dude it's not far from well it. but it that's interesting be. because there uh, how many songs can you name and not just your personal experience or stories that you've heard where somebody said they were listening to the radio and the host said you know what we're going to hear that one more time or the first time a song got played on the radio and then it got played like ten times That's in not that a, one I'd block. Never, ever. It only happens a couple times in the history of of radio where some DJ said, "You know what?" That like if I was mind. a DJ, it would probably happen more common. <laughs> but or, well, yeah. it would have back in the day. But for a song to blow you away so much that you had to play it twice in a row. Well, and I, and and touching on that again, I hate to keep dragging it out, but Loser Beck when Loser came oh, out. Oh yeah. Dude, that song, there was something about it, and I could not put my finger on it. And I, I described it to Beth, and I was like, have you heard this song? She's like, what? And I was like, it's called Loser. You have to hear it. We're riding to a Christmas party. We're going up 400. We're about to get off on Mansell Road. This is back in like 93, 94. And Beck, Loser, comes on. I literally pull the car over into the emergency lane, turn our hazards on, and I sit there and I was like, you need to hear this. And she's looking at me like I'm a lunatic. Like, dude, we're headed to <laughs> a Christmas song, party. Yeah. And that was just, it was just something about the I'm a loser, baby. Why don't you kill me? And the again, delivery. It was he, he owned it. And I mean, even the new back stuff. Mm-hmm. Wow. Like that song. I mean, there's just something about it. And it's not my genre of stuff. That's the no, amazing part. It's just music. At the end of the day, it's being on the music side instrumental side he realizes it's all good music right if it, it, it's either good or bad and it doesn't matter if it's Johnny Cash or you know Anthrax or whatever yeah. it's still well you hadn't quite named anything bad yet so I'm, I'm I mean, not sure how thing. you can I, use I'm, it or well, I'm hard pressed I mean, to name truly <clears throat> bad music because I feel like if music's bad because it's such a business it's just not going to get distributed if they can't find a market for it, no matter how small it is, right? It, you're, 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 the the concept of the free market will let you know. Kind of like comedy, like yeah. like like Jerry Seinfeld's always saying, he's like, the market will let you know if you're not funny, because you'll be selling shoes. Well, on that note, hopefully we're funny. <laughs> <laughs> I think we could keep talking about this all day. Let's. Uh, oh, I could talk about this till. Well, I could bring this back up at another time. <laughs> we'll bring it up at another time. Um. Thank you guys for sticking around for this uh, 
period of time to uh, <laughs> was like, we com- completely lost track of our our goal for any we're, kind of time for we this. talk about retirement <laughs> yeah but yes it, it, and again this is something that's it is a big big inspirational important should, thing to me we should break it down into um to decades next time we're only going to talk about that would still be difficult because i can break down the 80s pretty pretty well i feel like even that i never lived through the 80s easy flock of seagulls it's gonna be okay (laughs) all right guys y'all lick your spoon and get out of here bye bye